So, yeah, good morning, church family. That I can hear me loud and clear. It's an absolute joy for uh, my family and I to be here. Thank you for the privilege and thank you for the opportunity for, uh, that you're giving me to be sharing God's word this morning. But thank you as well for your hospitality, love and care for this past few days that we've been here. We've been well loved and well fed during this past few days. So uh, thank you so much. It has been a, a joy. And I uh, uh, just wanted as well to uh, introduce you, of course, to my wife there that is over there. Her name is Lily. So she's, uh, yeah, thank you. She's the better side of our of our duo, she's bringing, you know, the beauty, the godliness, the brilliance. I'm just here for entertainment. So um, I'm glad that you get to meet her at least. And so, and my son Samuel is over there too. If you can stand up, Samuel. Uh, as a, And the others are, are, are in. My oldest son, Daniel, cannot be here because he's attending a, a high school camp. And so he's not here, but uh, he would have loved to be here with you. But uh, thank you again for, um, for, for having us. It's a really a joy to be here. Um, well, there has been this uh, looming question in my, he- my head of late, and uh, the question is this, what would be said at my funeral? And like, some of you are kind of looking at me like, that's a weird question. That's a strange question, and that's kind of a gloomy question. But, and before you think that I'm asking myself that question because I'm seeking the approval of man, or because I want to worry too much about what people think about me, and before you start throwing tomatoes and eggs at me, ask yourself that question again and think about that question, because that's not necessarily a bad question. Because behind that question... There is another question there, a more important one, and it's this one. What impact do you want your life to have? What impact do you want your life to have? What do you want to be remembered for? What is it that you want to leave as a testimony? What is it that you want to have as an impact and influence to the people around you? What is it that you want to have done that has touched people's lives that it would be still remembered long time after you're gone? What is it that you want to be known for? Is there anything? Sadly, sometimes as Christians, we intend our lives to just be like uh, floating down a tranquil river of quietness. With you on a boat, floating, with not too many waves, and you're just going down that river with nobody else in the boat, nobody else in the water, nobody else in the banks, on the banks, just you and Jesus. Having a time of your life just going down through life. But that's unfortunately not how it works, right? How it works is that God has designed our life to be glorifying Him. And the main platform through which we are going to glorify God is through relationships. It's through dealing with people. And it's on those relationships, in those relationships, that God is put on display. So without further ado, let's go to our passage, which is in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 13, which actually deals with this important question. Will someone remember you when you die? And what will you be remembered for? We're in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has asked his disciples and all the people that followed there to to sit on that um, mountainside. And he started with the Beatitudes, and now in verse 13, he says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? 
It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word. We're so thankful for its clarity. We're so thankful for the work of the Holy Spirit in making it even more clear to us, Lord. And we are asking, Lord, that that same spirit would be at work in us to convict us. Thank you, Lord, that when your, your word speaks, you are speaking. Thank you, Lord, that in your word you have uh, not only um, told us who you are, but your will as to how we are to serve you. And so, Lord, as we go through this text, may you convict our hearts indeed as to the message of this text. And may you, Lord, help us to humble ourselves before your word and tremble at it. And tremble before the God of the word. And it's in your son's precious name that we pray. Amen. Well, the world these days, the people that are remembered these days, the people that are famous, the people that are known, are known mainly because of their ability to act. Or their ability to sing. Or ability sometimes to do just silly things on YouTube. Or their ability to play a sport. Right? And less and less are people remembered because of the impact that they had on society. But maybe some of you still remember some of those people. Maybe some of you still have heroes of the past. People that have impacted you like a brave soldier that you remember and that you want to emulate uh, his courage. Or a, a doctor that has saved millions of lives. Or a, a strong politician that has transformed society. Maybe you have some of those people in mind that have impacted your life in the past or are impacting your life now. But... I want you to think about your own life this morning. And I want you to think about how your life is impacting others. I want you to think about the impact that God wants you to have in the lives of others. I want you to think of what God wants others to remember of your life once you die. Because God wants to use you to change the life of others. And that is what our text is about here as to how our life is to, is to be used by God to transform the life of others. And so in our text today, we will see three characteristics of our lives that we must have we, if we want to have a life of impact that God favors. We're going to see three things that need to be so evident in our lives that people will remember us for it and that... Those three things will be the three things upon which God will assess our lives when we stand before him to be judged. These three things are related to our identity as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we go, I want you to ponder those three things and see if those characterizes your life, your own life, so that you would have the impact that God desires. The first thing is that we see it in verse 13. The first thing is lasting purity. Lasting purity. Read with me again in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can we be made salty again? 
It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Here, Jesus used the analogy comparing the believers to salt. And uh, what is this imagery that we have here? And uh, we come to a text that is uh, very familiar to us in, in one sense, because, you know, all of us have said, oh yeah, I've heard that, salt of, salt of the earth, light of the world, give me something else, you know? But sometimes being so familiar with a passage causes us to kind of overlook it, and of course, and, and sometimes even look at it with contempt, Instead of trying to see some of the things that are within that passage, because it's pregnant with meaning and implication that we miss if we don't humble ourselves and try to see what the Lord Jesus Christ is telling us here. And so here, as he uses the analogy of salt, there are four things uh, probably that most of uh, theologians would argue are uh, implied with the use of the imagery of salt here. The first thing is that in those days, salt was used as a currency. Salt was something of value, and um, in that world, in those days, salt was even used as a salary. For instance, soldiers that go to war were paid with salt. And so imagine now coming home with your bag of salt. Hey, honey, here's our salary for the month. I don't know how it will fly now, but back then it was good to come home with a bag of salt. That's how uh, you were paid. It was something of value. The second thing that you could be thinking about when you're thinking about salt, something that should be obvious to all of us, is that salt is used for flavor, isn't it? You're adding it to your food to add flavor, and salt is bringing flavor to what it is being added to. The third thing for the use of salt, especially in those days, was for preservation, was for preventing decay. They didn't have free, free fridges or freezers, and so salt was there to preserve what it was added to. Without it, it would decay faster and would be bad faster. And the fourth thing when we're talking about salt is that we see in the Bible that salt had value because of its use in uh, Israel's sacrificial system. If we Go to passages like Ezra chapter 6 or chapter 7 in verse 22. You will see that that's one of the things that they brought back from exile. And a lot of it as Cyrus sent them home. And as they knew that they would come back and build back the temple. One of the things that they needed is salt. Because if you go to Numbers chapter 18 and in verse 19 you would see that God told them to keep the covenant of salt. You could see that as well in Leviticus chapter 2 verse 13. And so one commentator looking at this uh, said that this way, the uniformly preservative and astringent action of this mineral typified permanence and purity as in the salt covenant or the Near Eastern method of establishing a bond of friendship by the eating of salt. So what was represented in that covenant of salt was the permanence and purity of the bond of friendship that was unifying those who were eating that salt together. And so because of that, salt had that value. And so we could be wondering which of those had Jesus, uh, Jesus had in mind when he used this analogy. I think that he had a little bit of all of them. But uh, if you look at the passage here, I think the idea of uh, flavor and preservation are the two ideas that are mostly in mind of our Lord. We know that because of what he says there in verse 13. If you look with me, it says you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, if it has lost its flavor, it is used for nothing. 
It is not, cannot be used for, for anything, sorry. We are called to be salt because the world is in need of salt because of its very fast decay. We know that we're going downwards and downwards into sin and Christians are, are here in this world to halt and to delay that decay. The world is desperately in need of a godly flavor. And church, that's what we are. That's who we are. We are a godly flavor bringing that flavor of godliness into this world that desperately needs it. And we are also that tool that God used to preserve the world from decay, from going deeper and deeper into the destruction caused by sin. So there's a few things here emphasized with this analogy. The first thing that uh, I think is really there is that saltiness must not be adulterated. Saltiness must be unadulterated. Salt here, as the imagery is being used here, it's the purity of salt that is being put on display. You are the salt of the earth. And salt, in order to be salt, needs to be salt. You're like, thank you for stating the obvious. But it is necessary for the salt to be completely devoid of any impurity because if other minerals come into the into that salt composition it becomes so diluted that it becomes counterfeit that it's not real salt it could look white it look look like a grain of salt but actually it is not salt and in that sense it is not performing its function so we need to be tasting different in that sense, and I don't think that it is a coincidence that, salt, coincidence that salt is white, but we must first be characterized by purity. We must be pure salt, unadulterated, unmixed with other things, just salt. The second thing that we could see here is that saltiness must be testable or tasteable, if I could put it in another way. Our character must be put to the test like salt, which has to be added to other things so that we could um, taste its flavor. Like um, Abraham and Joseph that had to have their faith faith tested so that it would be put forth. And uh, that's what happens when we put salt in our mouth, not just when we look at it, isn't it? We know the taste of salt when we taste it, not just when we look at it. And in the same way, the saltiness of our Christian walk would be seen when it's put to the test, not just by outward appearance by which we could fool people. So our saltiness must be testable. Thirdly, our saltiness must be continuous. You could see here that a salt is always salt as long as it's salt, isn't it? And we must be salt through and through. And in the same way as a Christians, our obedience to the word of God, our pursuit of righteousness must be marked by faithfulness and consistency. And we will come back to that later, but it is part of that Im- imagery here. But one more aspect of this imagery is that saltiness must stand out. I think one of the things that we all agree is that when we taste food, we immediately notice what? The lack of salt. Isn't it? We immediately notice in a, in, a, in a meal when there is not enough salt. I wonder if we could say the same about us. I wonder if we could say the same about you. Has your testimony and your purity been such that people around you notice when you're not there? 
When you're not there to bring in that godly flavor, does it make any difference? Do people notice when there is no Christian presence around them? Well, at least in the New Testament, there's two passages that kind of mark further the kind of impact that we must have. For instance, for instance, in Colossians chapter 4 verse 6, Paul tells us that our speech must be seasoned with salt, must be salty. And in the parallel passage to the one that we're studying today in Mark chapter 9 verse 50, it says salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with each other. So here in those two passages, we see that our saltiness must stand out at least in two areas, in the way we speak and in the way we behave. We are called to stand out in those areas, whether it is at school, it is at work, everywhere we are. We are, we'll talk more about that, but we need to be characterized by gracious speech and meekness. Is the purity of your testimony such That your friends kind of hesitate, you know, to say those bad words or uh, to do those bad things or even to light up a cigarette if they see you next to them. They're like, oh, here's that Christian guy again. If you do so, that's, you're doing your role as salt. You're preventing, you're delaying decay. And you're standing because of your purity. It's, it is kind of that rail guard that prevents people from going further even into sin. And that's what we have been called to do. Or is it that you are so silent in those circles that nobody even notice if you're here or not there? In that sense, you're not doing your role as salt. Salt is noticed when it's absent. Are you? Are you? Next point is that saltiness must be preserved in the salt shaker. Saltiness must be preserved in the salt shaker. Look at what Jesus says here in verse 13 again. It says, you are the salt of the earth. And the word you there is a second person plural word. So it's talking about saltiness as a collective characteristic. Individual saltiness contributes to the corporate testimony of saltiness to the world. We together as the body of Christ are the salt of the world. So your purity, my purity, our purity contributes to the purity of the testimony of the church so that we could impact this world. And so when the salt in the salt shaker is pure, then when it's poured into the world, we could really do what we're supposed to do. But if that purity is not preserved within the church... Or if we are so busy in the salt shaker looking at our own navel that we love staying within the salt shaker and not go out, we are not impacting this world. If in this salt shaker we are tolerating sin, our testimony is lost. Our testimony is lost. Remember that Our testimony is far-reaching, far more even than we like to think sometimes. Not only are we to impact this world, but our testimony even goes further. If you look at Ephesians 3 uh, verse 10, it tells us that our testimony is displaying the wisdom of God to the unseen realm. Like when angels see us together displaying that saltiness, they say, wow, God is wise. Is that What they say right now about us in this expression of the church body. Do angels go, wow, or or do they go, ooh? 
as they look at us? What testimony do we give as salt in the salt shaker? But it is so important for us to cultivate that collective testimony. So, friend, if you are here and if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you're part of this church body, know that your purity matters. It matters for you, first of all, because you're going to stand before a holy God one day, but it matters as well for all of us. If you are dirty, you're bringing dirt into the salt shaker. You're bringing dirt into the body and you're tarnishing the testimony of the body. Your holiness doesn't matter only for your own walk, but for our collective testimony. May that be impressed on our hearts, but that it does matter how we behave. And it matters in this culture that more and more tolerates sin as we talked about. How do we stand out? How is our saltiness in the area of sexual promiscuity? How is our testimony in the area of purity in our relationship between, uh, between, men and, between men and women within the church? How are we living our relationships in such a way that it would stand out? But I want to emphasize other things as well where sin could be creeping in into the church. How about the love of money? How about the love of money? How are we allowing that to creep in within the church in such a way that we identify ourselves or our church with numbers or with financial, uh, you know, financial measures of success? Or as well, another area where it easily creeps in. Let me talk to you parents. And I'm talking to myself as well because I have five kids. Let me talk to you parents. What do you emphasize more as important in the life of your children? Do you emphasize their godliness as being more important than their scorecard at school? Or is it that we have been so consumed by this idea that the primary measure of success in our parenting is how far our kids went? And as we've been discussing that if your son has not ended up a doctor, an engineer, or a lawyer, he's a failure. No, you failed in your parenting in a way, though of course God is the one who saves, if you haven't pointed him to Christ. Godliness matters more than a bank account. But sometimes in the way we behave even within the church, we're sending another message. Yeah, godliness kind of matters, but it's better to be godly when we have full pockets. That's the kind of message we're trying to communicate. And in doing that, we are adulterating the message. We're adulterating the message. We need to remember that we need to be countercultural. We need to be overemphasizing, uh, you know, small victories over sins rather than emphasizing financial success in, is in our kids or in our own lives. And I could go on and on and on. We need to remember that the church is the target for Satan and his, his goons and he wants to tarnish our testimony. He wants us to be busy with any other thing but the gospel. He wants to destroy our message by dirtying the messenger. He wants to destroy our family structures he wants us to forsake our unity and he wants to see each of us fall or fail to maintain our witness are we watchful so that we would not fall into those traps it has done already so much damages friends in so many churches and in so many families my call my appeal to you is let's be vigilant in the salt shaker let's all Strive to keep this salt shaker pure. 
And we are all part of this body together. And so let's keep each other accountable. That's why we are together in a body. Don't you find it ridiculous if you have a salt shaker and there's a grain of salt that says, no, I'm, I'm better outside the salt shaker alone on that kitchen counter. I feel very well here. Right? That sounds ridiculous, isn't it? But it is as ridiculous for a Christian not to be with other believers. To have the one another to protect your purity. And so we are called to be accountable to one another. If I am the one bringing the impurity into the church, it is your role to tell me. And if you are being impure, it is my role to tell you. We must preserve the purity of the salt shaker. Because salt ceases to be salt when it's not salt anymore. And we must be careful for the Judas kind of grain of salt. Who are actually not salt, aren't they? They pretend to be salt. They're trying to look like salt. But they're not salt because they have no saltiness to them. We'll come more to that. What happens when salt has lost its saltiness? Look there at verse 13. We're continuing there. Or if salt ceases to be salt indeed. Well, it must be thrown out. Isn't that what it says? We must get rid of it. A reputation takes time to build, but a second to destroy. Don't we all know of a pastor or someone who has been in ministry for many years who disqualifies himself for minutes of pleasure with another woman than his wife? Do we not know of an athlete who was bound for the sports pantheon that crashes his life by drinking and driving? Just in a second. Do we not know of a brilliant student who is overcome by peer pressure and has a one night stand and ends up pregnant and she just jettisoned her own life? Do we not know of a businessman who has been successful building all his success but because he wanted to keep up with the Joneses did that one more deal and stole from his company and loses everything in one day? You might know people like that. You might have an experience like that. But you could see that a reputation, your whole life testimony, could be destroyed in a moment. We see too many examples of that around us us these days with lives, marriages, careers, families, ambitions destroyed in one single moment. In one single moment. The Bible here warns us about tarnishing our testimony. The Bible says that it's of prime importance for us to have purity of character, to have an untainted testimony, and to not damage our reputation. Because if you do, what does the Bible say? You are no longer good for anything. You are no longer good for anything. The words that might come out of your mouth afterwards to appeal to a dying world will be powerless. The service that you would offer for God would be pointless. And fruitless. Why? Because the spirit of God is not carrying them. You will find yourself in a situation. Where you will not be able to do what you are supposed to do as a believer. You are not operating as you should. You cannot be salt any longer. Isn't that sad? Isn't that sad? If we lose our Christian flavor friends. We lose our usefulness to God. Careful here. We are talking about usefulness not of salvation 
The Bible is clear, right? In Romans chapter 8, verse 1, it tells us that there is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so once you are saved, once you have repented from your sin and given your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a citizen of the kingdom. But if you cease to behave like a citizen of the kingdom, then your relationship with the king is hampered. And the king will not use you because you're not behaving as one who is part of that kingdom. That is what is at stake here. Our testimony matters. Our strive to, uh, our strive to increase in our saltiness matters. And not, it matters not just because of the consequences for you, but because of the rescue mission you have been enrolled to perform in this world. And it matters not just because of the rescue mission you have been enrolled to perform, but because of the role you play in the collective mission and testimony of this church. And it matters not only just because of your personal testimony and the testimony of this church, but because you, if you're a Christian, you're bearing the name of Christ. And so everything that you do, your purity is, the t- is a testimony to who Christ is. And when you're tarnishing that, you're tarnishing the name of Christ. So it is of prime importance, friends, that we stay together in this salt shaker. And that we work with one another to grow in purity. Lasting purity is a characteristic that would make the church stand out. All of other beliefs could do all sorts of good things, can they? Everyone could dig a well in Africa. Everyone can feed the poor. But nobody else but us can be striving for purity in this world. And to display that purity in this world. So let me ask you this. Are you pure? Or do you have a sin that you are now no longer calling sin but a weakness? That you are tolerating and that you're having this body tolerate with you. Are you the one bringing impurity into the salt shaker? Or do you know a brother next to you that has an impurity but you kind of not look at it? He's got to deal with that himself because if I start talking to him, it's just going to be problems after problems and hours of talking with the pastor and I don't feel like that. Or is the purity of the church so important to us that you're ready to do anything to preserve it? That's the kind of attitude we must have. And if you have failed and and you want to acknowledge that you have failed, I am begging with you, stop right now. Do not pursue any longer this mad career of sin that you're into. Repent, turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and there is forgiveness there, there is grace there. He is faithful and just to forgive us all our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, says 1 John 1, 9. The true child of God does not keep on sinning. He strives to grow in purity. So, let me ask you, will you be remembered by those around you for your purity? Will you be remembered by those around you for your purity? Second, not only must we have lasting purity, but we must also have manifest particularity. Manifest particularity. We must basically stand out. In a particular way here in verse 14 and 15, we see that God, in 
the Lord Jesus switches from the analogy of salt to the analogy of light. And when we read that, there is sometimes a uh, common misunderstanding here because we think that we are the star of the show. We think that we are the one that matters. We think that we are the one that generates that light, that produces that light. But that's absolutely not true. We don't generate our own light. We are reflecting Christ's light. We are mirrors. We are conduits. We are emanation of the only true source of light, the Lord Jesus Christ, who Him Himself he is the perfect reverberation of the Father of light. Go with me to James chapter 1, verse 17. In James chapter 1, verse 17, it says, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadows. We don't want the spotlight on us. The value of the Christian comes from the value of Christ. When, when someone looks good in the mirror, when you look at a mirror one in the morning and you find that in the, that morning you have reached a, you have reached a higher state of gorgeousness, you don't compliment the mirror. Oh, what a nice mirror this morning. No. You're admiring this, the, the image that comes out of the mirror. Aren't you? In the same way, the attention is not on us. The attention is on the beauty of Christ that we reflect in when we live in the light. The attention, all our value is because we could display Christ. We have no value of our own. Uh, I use the analogy of those, you know, those little chihuahuas in Hollywood uh, stars, purses, you know, that they carry around. Those things would have no value. They would just be sausage on legs if they were not carried by that Hollywood stars. All, uh, uh, the only value that is ascribed to them is because of the care and because they are associated to their master. And now suddenly everyone marvels on those furry sausages because the Hollywood stars love them. I don't want you to think of you as a sausage or a chihuahua right now. But I want you to realize that you have of no value if you do not display the value of Christ. He is the one that matters. He purchased us with his own life so that we could bear fruit and bear his light. So what is light? When he uses the analogy of light, what is he talking about? Light is that which is outwardly visible of Christ in you. Light is that which is outwardly visible of Christ in you. Through your words, your attitudes, and your actions. Our thinking, our speech, our behavior must be like Christ. We are to manifest Jesus' character to others and bring others to believe in the Jesus we display. And so where is this light to shine? Look with me again in verse 14. What does he say? You are the light of the world. This light must be visible in this present world everywhere we are. As we are surrounded by brokenness and darkness in this world, we are to bring the contrast. We live in an age when people increasingly love darkness and Jesus said it would happen. For instance, in John chapter 3 verse 19. And this world is spiraling down and down and down and down into more darkness. Which will lead them eventually to eternal darkness. But church, this is why we are here. We are to be a beacon of light in this dark and weary land. 
Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 14. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. One of the parents' favorite verse, isn't it? Telling their kids all the time, do all things without grumbling. And all. But what does it say? Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you will appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. How does it say that we could be lights? By holding fast to the word of life. By living our lives according to this book. Because nobody else does. We stand out. We are particular. We are singular. We are set apart. We are different. Because we live our lives by this book. We are visible. And we are allowing God's glory to be displayed through us. When this is guiding our lives. We see two things here that are characterizing that light. If you look with me there in verse 14 and 15 still. He he uses an analogy, right? He says that a city on a hill cannot be hidden. The first characteristic of light that is emphasized here is permanence. Permanence. Because a city is a permanent structure. You cannot tear down a city for one hour and build it the next hour, can you? Okay, some of you may be thinking, yeah, it could be possible. No, it's not. Okay? It could be possible for one building or whatever, but not for a whole city. In the same way that you remember from James chapter 1 verse 17, our Father of lights is without variation and or shadows. Our testimony must be without variations or shadow. What it means is simple. You need to be light all the time. Your singularity must be visible at all times for all men to see. Do not live a hypocritical life by which there's a Sunday version of you that looks almost as holy as Paul. But then during the week, you live like the world. In order to be lights for God, we must be permanently light we must be together like that city on that hill telling them we are here to stay and we are here offering you a way to the light we have a bigger purpose in that sense than what even we could think of that it is so important for us to be consistent in our testimony not only must light be permanent but it must also be visible Obviously, and you could see there the examples that he uses that nobody, if he has a light, puts it and hides it under a basket. But on the contrary, puts it on a lampstand, which means puts it on display. On purpose, you put up, you put forward your Christian character for everyone to see you purposefully show who you are. And doing otherwise is absurd and is being unfaithful. It would be ridiculous, wouldn't it, to light up a light and then put it under a basket. In the same way, it would be ridiculous for you to be in Christ Jesus and not put it on display. God wants us to make it obvious who we are. There is no undercover 
agent of the Lord. There is no secret agent of the Lord. In fact, if you think of the analogy that Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, when he says, you are being sent like sheep among wolves. Well, that's not the best hiding tactic to go as sheep among wolves, is it? It would be obvious who you are. People would know who you are. And so Jesus is expecting you, is expecting me to walk outside in this outside world with a bullseye on our chest. Because that's the power of Christianity. Not hiding it, but displaying it. Your life needs to be an open book. Your life needs to be saying to everyone around you, I love you because Christ loved me. And my, I am here, I am the same always, and you know where to find me if you have any questions. And I'm doing this because I know that Jesus has transformed my life. He has taken me out of the kingdom of darkness into his marvelous light. Do you have any questions? But I will never cease to be who I am because that is who I am right now. And so our lives must be so much on display that people should be able to scrutinize it and see that we are consistent in our testimony. So let me ask you, is there something in your life that you would rather not have on display? Text messages you send to your friends? Your chat history? Your internet history? Your use of finances? Or as, one, as my mentor taught me, one of the best measure to ascertain this is this. Would there be anyone that you would be ashamed to see standing up at that door right now? Because he or she knows something about you that you would be ashamed for the rest of the church to know. If that is the case, you have jettisoned your testimony to that person and you have tarnished the testimony of this church. Brothers and sisters, this is serious. We need to stand out as light in this world of darkness. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Verse, starting in verse 7. Tells us, therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness. But instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. Our life as light is visible and we are bringing light to all those around us. That's what he says back in verse 15, right? When that lamp is, uh, in Matthew 5 verse 15, when that lamp is placed on the lampstand, it gives light to all. Everyone around you benefits from your clarity, your calm, your warmth, your meekness, and your presence becomes necessary and desired. Because you're testifying to the work of the Father of light in your own life. So let me ask you, will you be remembered as one who was visibly and consistently loving Christ? Will you be remembered as one who was visibly 
and consistently loving Christ. Third, not only must we have a lasting purity, but must we have a manifest particularity, but we must also have in verse 16 a worthy purpose, a worthy purpose. Because not only does God assess the things we do, the things we say, and the things we think, but he's also assessing our motive, the reason why we do things. What, why is it that we do what we do? And that's exactly the question I want to ask you here. What's at the heart of your heart? What is pushing you to do the things you do? What is your personal motivation? Is it pleasure? Is it comfort? Is it people pleasing? Is it attention craving? Is it fame? Is it reputation? Is it success? Is it affluence? Is it security? Is it personal happiness? All of those ought not to be the end motive for Christians. Pleasing God must be the sole driving motive and Bringing people to glorify God by glorifying God ourselves must be the standard by which we live our lives. And that must be the motivation that we have. But notice again there in verse 16. In verse 16, it focuses on us, not on them. Because one thing that is very easy to do as Christians is to focus on the outside world and to complain and to, and to moan of how it's difficult to be a Christian now and how we are wronged as Christians and how the world is persecuting Christians and how they're doing all of those wrong things and how things are going worse and worse. They're sinners. What did you expect? Sinners do sin. That's what they do. We should not be either surprised nor focusing on the darkness of the, Lord, of, the, of the world out there. Rather here this passage is telling us that we should redirect our attention to ourselves and see how we ourselves are doing in redirecting this world to Him, to God. So we are not moral policemen flashing our flashlights at others' faces pointing to their wrongs. We are lampposts. Shining our light on a better path for people to follow. The Holy Spirit is the one that convicts them and condemns them. Our role is to warn and to point. So instead of pointing fingers at others, point your finger to Him and tell them to look up. As Christians, it's so easy for us to criticize others and our shortcomings. And yet we are failing to show them God's glory. We, fail in the, we fall in the trap of being sad or critical about what the world does wrong. And we fail to show them how to do it right. So it is important for us to remember what Matthew says here. We indeed must let our light shine. And we must do it for the right reasons. We must do it because we want to show them how marvelous our God is. We want to show them the love of Christ. And we do that out of compassion. They are not our enemies. They are who we were before God saved us. We sometimes tend to forget that we were sinners. And in many sense we are still sinners, aren't we? It's so easy to see the shortcoming of the world and forget that we were there. 
And if it was not by God's grace, you would also still be a hater of God. So it is true for every believer in Jesus Christ that we must keep in our, the forefront of our mind the words of this, the lyrics of this hymn, which says, I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. And if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. But as I ran my hell-bound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. And I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. Grace. By grace you have been saved. And yet that same grace we fail to display to other people. By grace you have been chosen to let your light shine before men. By grace you are to put on display how the gospel impacted you and transformed you. That infinite grace that is available for all today, for all who would like to surrender their life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because friend, if you are here today, and if you have not submitted your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, in order to be salt and light, you must first be alive. And the Bible says that you are dead in your sins and your transgressions right now, and because of that, you are not able to do any good in the eyes of the Lord. But that same grace that saved me and saved many others here is available for you. Is available for you so that he would transform your life too. And that instead of spending your life in an eternity of darkness, you would come into his kingdom of light and you would have a true impact. Your life would finally matter because you would leave it with the purpose of glorifying God. The purpose of glorifying God. So, come join the salt shaker. It's a bit shaky sometimes, but we're having a lot of fun in the salt shaker. And we can have a true impact in this world. But for you, my brothers and sisters in the Lord, remember that everything we do must be for the purpose of showing how great God is through what He has done in our lives. Our purpose for being is to display the greatness of God. And so in that sense, what will be the impact of your life? Would your life have internal impact on the life of others around you? Did your life or is your life changing the eternal destiny of those who cross your path? You do so. By being willing to be used by God as an instrument to show who he is and what he has done. Lasting purity, manifest particularity, and worthy purpose. These three things will make you really stand out in this world. And you will be remembered by those you brought to Christ. To saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. You will be remembered by your physical and spiritual family in the Lord for the impact you've had in their own walk with the Lord. And you will be remembered by God when you stand before Him on the day of judgment. And you must be wondering, what does that have to do with missions? Isn't he a missionary? Isn't he supposed to talk about mission stuff, you know, like, you know, stuff? Well, this has everything to do with missions because that is mission. The famous quote from John Piper is what? 
Mission exists because worship doesn't. The whole purpose of missions is to get people from every tongue, tribe, and nations to worship and glorify God. How do we do missions? The same way we do Christian life. By displaying the pure, set-apart life that only the gospel can produce. And by proclaiming loud and clear the message of scripture, providing the basis for why we do what we do in order to point people to God. Not all of us are called to be missionaries. But all of us who believe are in the salt shaker. And in the salt shaker we've been given the same mandate. You are as much salt as I am. You are as much light as I am as a missionary. I have been called to the mission field in Madagascar. But you have been set apart to the harvest field here in dark San Francisco. If there is one thing for you to take away from this is Please note that spiritual apathy is not an option for Christians. We have been given life to proclaim life. We have received grace to be conduits of grace. We have been made salt to impact the earth. We have been made light so that we could let it shine. We are called to do it together. You are keeping me accountable. I am keeping you accountable. You pray for us on the field. We pray for you as ascending church. Because if any one of us loses his purity his otherness to this world and the purpose for which we do the things we do, we are all losing our usefulness to the Lord. So what do you want your life to be remembered for? May it be that you would be remembered for your lasting purity, for your standout particularity and for the fact that you have pointed people God's word. God word. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, it is all about you. It is not about us. And we're so thankful that in your wonderful plan, you have chosen us to be instruments to point people to you. We're asking you, Lord, that we would be convicted by this world words from your scripture and that we would indeed strive to maintain our purity, to maintain our testimony, and to be motivated by the desire to glorify you in everything we say, do, and think so that the world will see what a marvelous God you are And so that many would come to praise you from every tongue, tribes, and nations. May the the testimony of this church be so pure that it would be a beacon of light in the city of San Francisco. May you encourage my brothers and sisters to be light wherever they are, in the corporate offices, in the schools, and in the supermarkets, in the neighborhoods. May they be salt and light. May we, Lord, as a church, as the body of Christ, hear the words from our Lord that our Lord said to the church in Smyrna, be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. May that resound in our hearts and our mind today, and from now on, in your son's precious name, amen.